And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we got a lot to talk about. Uh, first off, in just a few days, we are having a night with Hope. This is our spring fundraising event for Hope Resource Center. We're going to uh, imitate what we did last year. Uh, it's going to be all online. It's going to be about 30 minutes. It's really about 25 minutes. Uh, we'll, and, and it's going to be a great time. So hopefully you will... Uh, you will tune in with us, and uh, it starts at 8 o'clock on Thursday, April 29th. You can watch that at our Facebook page. You can watch that on YouTube. You can watch that at Instagram. You can watch it uh, a number of different places. And so we would we would love for you to uh, to join us in that and and watch and share it with friends and and uh, just see what we have to say. And so what the night's going to look like is I open it up. And then we're going to hear, uh, we're going to have a partner spotlight. We're going to have a, uh, a, one of our great partners, Amanda May Photography. Uh, we do a spotlight on her and then we talk about, uh, then we hear from a patient, a patient that has received every service that we offer at Hope Resource Center. So you'll get to hear from her and then you'll get, uh, about three minutes of me finishing it up. Uh, and so we, again, we won't keep you long. You can sit in your living room. You can wear your pajamas. You can have pizza. You can have people over and watch it, whatever works for you. We would love, uh, for you to, uh, to join us in that. And so, so today we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to look at, uh, what is happening in the world uh, concerning or in the country concerning, uh, abortion and Down syndrome. And there was a pretty big court case that was decided, uh, not too long ago, uh, that might surprise some of you. And so what does that mean moving forward? We're also going to look at, um, what that means just across the board, the, the court decision and, and what that may mean with, with other states. And so, uh, so we're, we're going to talk about that. It's really going to be our focus and, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into things as they come. One thing I do want to note before I came on air today, uh, Governor Lee made an announcement that, uh, he has already said the 89 counties that are under state's jurisdiction. Uh, so like if you're in Knoxville here, Knox County, the public health department uh, kind of runs the show. Uh, but 89 counties in, in the state, uh, the, the state of Tennessee kind of run that. And so he said that in those 89 counties, mask mandates are no more gone. Business restrictions are no more. They're gone. Uh, he pretty much said today the pandemic is over. It is no longer considered that. And we are going to move forward as a state, which, which we never had mask mandates, uh, at least from a state level. Uh, we haven't had a mask mandate from the governor's office. They've encouraged it, uh, you know, in local counties and local municipalities have, have uh, required it. But from the state, it never happened from our governor. So hat tip to him. Uh, but he did say that he talked to the other counties, the Knox County and Nashville and uh, you know, Shelby County, and, and he said that he has strongly encouraged them uh, to end all restrictions and mask mandates by Memorial Day. So uh, good news. I think we're moving in the right direction. A lot of folks are getting their vaccines, uh, at least now in the state of Tennessee. Uh, if you are 16 years and older, you don't even have to make an appointment. You can get your vaccine if you so choose. That's up to you. And a lot of folks have done that. And so uh, I think, you know, we've said this a number of times, but I think we're finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And we're on 
a nice trajectory. So Governor Lee made that announcement today. Did want to point that out. Now let's look at some news. Uh, you can find this article over at National Review talking about a court decision um, that that I think matters to a lot of us, especially pro-lifers. So uh, earlier last week, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in preterm Cleveland versus McLeod upheld an Ohio law forbidding doctors from knowingly performing an abortion on an unborn child diagnosed with Down syndrome. Because several of the concurrences referenced the 2019 concurrence by Justice Clarence Thomas and Box versus Planned Parenthood, in which he illustrated the link between the logic of selective abortion and the history of eugenics, the Sixth Circuit decision has occasioned commentary from abortion proponents who argue that abortions chosen because of a Down syndrome diagnosis are not eugenic in nature. Writing in Slate, Mark Joseph Stern alleges that the Sixth Circuit ruling exemplifies an effort by conservative judges to manipulate the history of eugenics to overturn Roe v. Wade. Stern interviews New York University law professor Melissa Murray, who asserts, among several other inaccurate claims, that it is pro-lifers, not proponents of abortion, who historically have been motivated motivated by discrimination. Uh, They said this, quote, abortion restrictions were fueled by the fear that white women were using abortion and, as a consequence, were not having as many children. And the white race was about to be overwhelmed by African-Americans and immigrants, end quote. That was what they believed pro-lifers were doing. In fact, something close to the opposite is true. Uh, as this author wrote in response to Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe last year, it is the abortion rights movement, not the pro-life movement, that finds its origins in the U.S. population control and eugenics movement. Far from opposing abortion, the eugenics movement considered it an essential part of preventing, whether via birth control, sterilization, or abortion, undesirable populations such as minorities and low-income individuals from reproducing. We know that to be true. Statistically speaking, our regime of legal abortion has performed how how these white supremacists might have hoped. Today, an African-American woman is nearly three times as likely as a white woman to have an abortion, according to the Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute. CDC data shows that African-Americans accounted for 36% of abortions in 2015, despite, despite being, uh, let's see, Sorry, my my phone updated. That's how this works, right? Um, despite being only 13% of the population. Meanwhile, about 80% of Planned Parenthood's abortion facilities are located within walking distance of neighborhoods occupied predominantly by black and Hispanic residents. Surely that is no coincidence. That these women choose abortion at such a disproportionately higher rate than wealthy white women is hardly a sign of liberation or progress. Murray goes on to argue that, quote, there's a real difference between a state sterilizing the feeble-minded in Buck versus Bell and an individual woman's decision to terminate a pregnancy because of a fetal anomaly or diagnosis. Murray is correct. To be sure that there are important distinctions between a state-sponsored regime to target, quote, unfit populations and a woman choosing abortion after receiving a prenatal Down syndrome diagnosis. But the concurrences in preterm Cleveland versus McLeod never assert that these situations are exactly alike. Rather, they argue that the core belief behind these situations is precisely the same. That some human lives are lesser, are of lesser value and that as a result, other human beings must be given the proper or the power to exterminate them at will. A similar argument appeared today on the legal blog Dorf on Law in an article by Sherry F. Kolb, uh, uh, 
Cornell University law professor. Kolb argues that because eugenics is defined as a movement aimed at improving the genetic composition of the human race, it is inapt to call selective abortions eugenic because a woman who chooses abortion after a Down syndrome diagnosis, quote, understands that she is thereby doing virtually nothing to alter the human genome, end quote. But Kolb ignores another meaning of the adjective eugenic, relating to or fitted for the production of good offspring. Though the term eugenics undoubtedly evokes a program of controlled selective breeding to reshape a population, it is entirely accurate to describe as, quote, eugenic an individual choice to eliminate a child deemed, quote, unfit, even in just one instance. Kolb concludes with this argument. Uh, Kolb says this, what if everyone pregnant with a Down syndrome fetus terminates? What then? Do we want to live in a world in which Down syndrome people are extinct? No, there is no question, but that... People with Down syndrome, like people with all sorts of other challenges, enrich our world and teach us to tolerate those who differ from ourselves. It would indeed be sad if the world contained no one with Down syndrome. But just because we want a group of people in the world does not entitle us to conscript individuals to create such people in their wombs. I cannot believe that person wrote that and his own record saying that. Of course we don't, this is her, this is a summary. Of course we don't want a world without people or without Down syndrome people. But just because we want that doesn't mean that we can have, you know, make it where people can't abort. What if you, instead of Down syndrome, you said black people? Instead of Down syndrome, you said white people? Instead of Down syndrome, you said females? Instead of Down syndrome, you said males? Instead of Down syndrome, you said uh, blind? Instead of Down syndrome, you said those that are, that are missing a limb? You see where this path takes you? That is why we make the argument that this is eugenics. The, the, article, or the, the article goes further. But of course, forbidding abortions chosen on the basis of a disability cannot rightly be described as conscripting individuals to create such people in their wombs. When a pregnant mother receives a prenatal Down syndrome diagnosis, she has already created a human being who might have Down syndrome. Those such tests have known to be wrong. Forbidding a woman from actively killing her unborn child based on its disability is not the same thing as conscripting her into creating that child. That defenders of legal abortion are reduced to such arguments is telling. In the end, it doesn't matter much whether we can rightly label certain abortions eugenic or, or whether one side of the debate has the most accurate history of racial discrimination and population control. What matters is that in Ohio... Lawmakers have laid down a marker establishing that it is wrong and therefore that it is now illegal to end the life of an unborn human being simply because he or she is diagnosed with a abnormality. Supporters of abortion refuse to respond to this argument because to do so would expose the logic of all abortion, which, regardless of disabilities, grants some human beings the power to declare the lives of others not worth living. You see, that's that's where it comes to. That's why that person wrote that article saying, look, of course, we don't want to have a world where there's no Down syndrome people or people with Down syndrome that we don't want to end all of their lives. But sure, we want to end some of their lives. Women should have the power to end the lives of the baby growing inside of them. That is their argument. That is their belief. You see, and, and so we can we can camp out here and talk about eugenics and talk about Down syndrome, but the reality is 
the narrative and the agenda of the abortion industry is we don't care if the baby is 100% healthy. We don't care what's going on with the baby because the baby isn't a life. The baby isn't an individual human that deserves rights. We don't care what the reason. You should be able to end the life of that baby. So, so in saying that pro-lifers historically wanted to, to curtail abortion because we felt like the white race was getting outpaced by African Americans, which is nonsense. But in making that argument, the abortion industry is making the argument in support of a white supremacist saying we should end the lives of black babies in the womb. Now, now, so if you're a white supremacist, why would you not be pro-abortion? If you are racist, why would you not be pro-abortion? If you are about furthering your race and and getting us to a place of purity then of course you're going to be for abortion because you can control it it is eugenics especially when they say hey this baby has down syndrome we need to end the life of of this baby I mean, a couple of years ago, we saw articles come out saying uh, this particular part of the of the world has ended Down syndrome. And I, I saw the headline and I thought, oh, my gosh, what what amazing science? What have they done? And then you read deeper, deeper into it. And all they did was abort 100 percent of those that were diagnosed with Down syndrome before they were born. They aborted all of them. So the, th- that particular part of the world didn't end Down syndrome. They just ended the lives of everyone that was diagnosed. You see, that's not progress in science. That is moving backwards and ending the lives of human beings. Because they are Down syndrome. Because they have one particular thing that you think is a deformity. Because they have one particular thing that makes them different from everybody else. Well, they can't possibly have a life. We need to be able to end that life. So hats off to the state of Ohio for passing the legislation for the governor signing the legislation, for the taking it to the courts, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in favor of the state of Ohio. That's good news because the state of Tennessee has got a law coming out very similar, and other states are going to follow suit, especially now. We'll talk more about this and more when we come back. So we're going to continue the conversation on this particular court case uh, concerning the state of Ohio and uh, those with Down syndrome and, and the right to or to not abort uh, anyone that is diagnosed with that. And so the reason I want to I want to kind of talk about this and park here for for the bulk of the show today is because this is a conversation. This is a conversation that we must we must have because. If, if we are living in a moment where we can specifically target a population and say that population has no value. And if, if you are, if you are told that your child has a possibility of being a part of that population, then you should be able to end the life of that child. Now, now hear me. This isn't, this isn't because of life of the mother. 
This isn't because of uh, incest or rape or or any of the caveats that, that get thrown out there. This is simply because your child may or may not have Down syndrome. And you are going in and saying, look, I want to have an abortion because this child has Down syndrome. You could be financially stable. You could be in an amazing marriage. You could, you could be, uh, you could be wealthy. You could have a great job. You could have all the support and, and, you know, uh, the, the support that, that you possibly could need. And the only reason is because, well, we, we did the pre, uh, we did the test and the tests have said that our baby has Down syndrome and that is why we want to end their life. You, you see, you see where, where this may take us. So what's to stop? What's to stop someone saying, you know, this baby that I'm having has a white daddy and I don't want it to have a white daddy. So I'm going to end the life of this baby. This baby that I'm having has a black daddy and I don't want it to have a black daddy. So I'm going to end the life of this baby. Well, well, nothing's going to stop that. I mean, we have people do that now. Y'all don't, y'all know that, right? We have people that say, look, the, it, it, the father of this baby could be white or it could be black. And depending on, on what you tell me, that's going to determine my decision. We, we have that happening. We have abortion industries planting their flag and opening up their shops all across this country in minority neighborhoods. Now, why do they do that? Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, finally is coming out and saying, Margaret Sanger, yeah, yeah, she was racist. She wasn't just racist. She was for eugenics. She was for ridding the world of the weeds and the lessers. That's what she wanted to do. She was open about it. And and it took up till 2021 for Planned Parenthood to come out and say, yeah, okay, she's a racist. Hillary Clinton won the Margaret Sanger Award. So not too long ago, they were actually giving awards out in the name of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the, the person that, that brought all this to be. And now all of a sudden, 2021, oh yeah, by the way, Margaret Sanger, is, she's racist. Pro-lifers have been saying that for a long time. So there's another great piece that I, that I wanted to uh, look at because it goes into further detail on the decision by the Sixth Circuit Court. And and uh, this article is over at National Review as well. It says, in addition to a summary provided uh, in the on the majority opinion, uh, th- this particular author, Ed Whalen, uh, will highlight three concurring opinions, each by a judge who fully joined uh, Batchelor's opinion. So Judge Jeffrey S. Sutton observes that the case is, quote, Exhibit A in a proof that federal judicial authority over the issue has not been good for the federal courts or for increased stability over this difficult area of law. He goes further. Assuming still more judicial responsibility over so much abortion policy comes with terrain-altering costs to the judiciary. An independent judiciary has always been crucial to America's constitutional order, but a politicized judiciary cannot be an independent judiciary. The more the judicial branch enumerates our country's policies in areas of sorry, um, in liberty rights over which the people have legitimate disagreements, the more it becomes a new source of power. 
an allocation of responsibility that comes with the worst features of gerrymandering, a warping of democracy and a perceived manipulation of the decision-making process. Any effort to insulate such power from the political fray is not likely to last long or end well. Far better, in my view, to give states like Ohio more latitude, not less, to weigh and decide complex questions about abortion policy. Yes, amen, and thank you. As part of his explanation why he does not find this case, quote, difficult as a matter of federal constitutional law, end quote, Sutton notes that the federal constitution permits states to convey their interest in the dignity of all human beings in all manner of ways, including by seeking to avoid the stigma that comes with pub- publicly acknowledged discrimination against the born and the unborn based on disability, sex, and race. I mean, think about that. Even when you hire people, you, you can't, you have to say, we do not discriminate. What if, what if you were hiring? What, what if your, your policies and procedures as a CEO said, we do not discriminate, but if you have Down syndrome, you will not be hired. What if you said that? You think the market's going to support you? Of course not. Judge Richard Griffin echoes Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in Box versus Planned Parenthood in which Thomas argued that Indiana's law barring abortion sought solely because of the child's race, sex, diagnosis of Down syndrome, or non-lethal disabilities promotes a state's compelling interest in preventing abortion from becoming a tool of modern-day eugenics. While the eugenics movement has lost its popularity, Griffin notes, the selective abortion of unborn babies who are deemed unfit or undesirable is becoming increasingly common. Judge John Bush argues that in the absence of any Supreme Court holding that decides the question, a lower court should not treat Supreme Court dictum as dispositive and should be wary of extending dubious precedent. And so judge after judge after judge here is saying this. Instead, the lower court should look to the Constitution's original meaning. He explores the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and determines that it would not have limited a legislature's authority to bar eugenic abortions. So look, when we talk about eugenics and when we talk about abortion, when we talk about where we are currently in a state of affairs in our country, it is not crazy. It is not extreme for legislatures across this country to say, look, if you want to have an abortion, you, you some would argue there are legitimate reasons to have that abortion. These legislatures are just saying, we don't believe a legitimate reason would be because your baby has been diagnosed with Down syndrome. Just like we're not going to support abortion based solely on race. What if one day we find a gene that, that you can tell your, your baby is homosexual? And, and people started saying, hey, we're going to abort the baby because we've been told by this test that that this baby will be a homosexual. How do you think that's going to play out in in the narrative? Look, folks, the, the reason I'm so adamantly pro-life is because I believe that every human bears the image of God. But But even further than that, let's say you're listening to this going, yeah, that's all well and good, Andrew, but I don't believe in God. So that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. Every individual you come in contact with is an individual deserving of rights. They're an individual that has never been created before 
and will never be created again. And guess what? Everybody you lay eyes on today and everybody you have ever laid eyes on grew inside of a womb. Just like you, just like me. And to say that that some lives are more valuable than others. Look, we've been having a national conversation for a while when it comes to black lives and blue lives and and, and every life. To say that some lives have more value than other is nonsense. That's not that doesn't say anything about the Black Lives Matter movement. It doesn't say anything about the Blue Lives Matter movement. It doesn't say anything. All I'm saying is the fact remains every human deserves a right to live a chance at life so again thank you ohio thank you sixth circuit court of appeals this is the right decision states should be able to do this we'll talk more when we come back as we continue the conversation you know Again, the reason I wanted to bring up the, the topic today is because I think it matters and I think it's something that, that doesn't get enough, uh, discussion. And, and if it doesn't get enough discussion, then, then when are we going to speak up for those with Down syndrome? I mean, when, when are we going to speak for them? You know, they, every now and then you'll see somebody with Down syndrome in front of a committee in Washington or, uh, are talking about this and that, but, but they don't, they get very little media play. So when are we going to speak up for them? I mean, we, we have some folks making the argument that you should have legislation that says, if you walk up to your doctor and say, Hey, because of the test you just gave and, and the fact that I now know my baby has down syndrome or the possibility of having down syndrome, I want to abort this baby. And you have a segment of the population just going, yeah, we should cheer them on and have a parade for them. Is, is that the path we want to take? Is that the path we want to take? I mean, we live in an upside-down world. I get it. We, we live in broken times, broken people. But we will completely shift all plans for any kind of building, any kind of commercial facility, any kind of roads, any kind of pipeline, anything, if we find some random turtle that nobody knew existed in, out in the middle of nowhere, we will bring everything to a screeching halt for the protection of that turtle. But then we are celebrating someone going to the doctor and saying, hey, I think my baby has Down syndrome. Let's end the life of this child. It makes no sense to me. No sense to me. I now want to talk about some some good news coming out uh, that the abortion industry seems to be ignoring. Uh, but pro-life doctors are rallying around a new effort in the medical community, a treatment protocol that can reverse the effects of a chemical abortion before a pregnant mother loses her unborn child. <clears throat> so you know in the last couple of weeks we talked about telemedicine and the uh, how they're making it easier to get an abortion. Now now folks can just go uh, and, and do a telemed visit with a doctor. 
They can get the abortion pills in the mail, even though the abortion pill, the, the side effects and, and the, the chances that that mom will still have to go to the emergency room and have a surgical procedure is five to seven percent, which is a pretty, pretty high. Um, even though that occurs, they're, they're saying, hey, we should just be able to ship you the pills in the mail, take the pills and your baby will uh, no longer be alive and, and your pregnancy will be over. Well, there are some pro-life doctors that are trying to make a change to that instead of um, helping to give women uh, or there, there's pro-life doctors that are seeking to to really push a uh, a medical treatment protocol that can reverse the effects of a chemical abortion. And that's important. Instead of helping to give women that choice, the abortion industry has come down hard against this new method, opposing legislation that would inform women of their options. About one-third of annual abortions in the U.S. are chemical abortions, the most common type of abortion procedure in the first trimester, approved by the Food and Drug Administration for up to 10 weeks gestation. A chemical abortion takes place in two stages. First, a pregnant mother is given uh, the abortion pill, which blocks progesterone, an essential hormone in the growth, development, and sustaining of a fetus. 24 to 48 hours later, she takes a second drug containing um, another... Uh, Another pill that induced cramping and bleeding to expel the fetus. A little more than a decade ago, doctors began to develop a safe, successful way to halt that process aimed at helping women who have taken the abortion pill to reverse the process of terminating their pregnancy before they took the second pill. So that, so that's how it works. They get two pills. You take the first and then later you take the second. 48 hour, 24 to 48 hours later, you take the second drug. Well, now doctors, and, and actually a decade ago, they've been working on this and they've done study after study after study, and now they're saying that they can step in after the first pill's been taken and before the second pill's been taken, and they can reverse reverse the abortion. Leaders in the abortion industry tend to deny that women ever come to regret abortion, a claim easily disproven, uh, of course, by anecdotal evidence and scientific studies. Nevertheless, supporters of legal abortion insist that abortion pill reversal is unnecessary because no women would elect to undo a chemical abortion once she's taken the first dose. But according to Dr. Christina Francis, chairman of the board of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, more than 2,000 women have chosen APR and successfully halted a chemical abortion. Francis says that she assisted one patient who has started a chemical abortion and later delivered a healthy son after choosing the abortion pill reversal treatment. She said that as soon as she took the abortion drug, she immediately regretted it. And she went home and Googled, can I reverse my abortion? That Google search eventually led her to Francis, one of the many providers willing to treat women who are determined to halt their partially completed chemical abortions. Women looking to reach those doctors can call a hotline number where a trained nurse will screen them and direct them to a local practitioner for treatment. The mechanism of abortion pill reversal is simple and scientifically sound. It can be attempted only for women who have taken uh, Mifeprex, the, the first of the two chemical abortion drugs, and not the second drug. And it must be started within 72 hours of taking the first pill. The method entails prescribing women a sustained regimen of progesterone, which competes in the body with the first pill, uh, the abortion pill, and ideally prevents the abortion drug from cutting off nutrition and support to the fetus. In the largest case that series, studying the effects of abortion, abortion pill reversal, women who received treatment and successfully reversed an attempted abortion had no increased risk of complications or birth defects. 
Close to 70% of the 754 women studied were able to undo the effects of the abortion pill and carry healthy babies to term. As Francis puts it, there's no medical reason this regimen shouldn't work as its mechanism is consistent with basic chemistry. In fact, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has affirmed that progesterone is proven safe in pregnancy. And even the development trials for uh, the abortion pill suggest that progesterone would work in this way. In animal study during the trial, high doses of progesterone showed the ability to prevent the abortion drug from taking effect. Because of the promise this method has shown, pro-life legislators want to require abortion providers to inform women women seeking a chemical abortion that abortion pill reversal is an option. Now, they are pro-choice after all. Why would they not mind that? As long as they have taken only the first abortion pill. Under this legislation, women would remain, remain free to choose chemical abortion, but would be equipped with the knowledge to give informed consent and have access to care if they change their mind. Part of informed consent is talking about risk, benefits, and alternatives. That's basic, Francis adds. We learned that at the beginning of our medical training, important to note, too, is that women who regret abortion are at a higher risk for a variety of mental health disorders. Unsurprisingly, the abortion industry opposes these proposals, and several states are tied up in court defending against lawsuits from abortion activist groups. Abortion supporters claim, contrary to the evidence, that the APR is harmful to pregnant women. When, in fact, doctors routinely prescribe progesterone to pregnant women who have a risk of preterm birth or with a history of reoccurrent miscarriage. Yeah, my wife received it while she was pregnant. I mean, it's this is what's frustrating to me. The the abortion industry would say that pro-lifers are science deniers. Yet when the science says that it is okay, and then the science says that, that it is possible to reverse the effects of the abortion pill, The abortion industry fights it in the courts. Why is that? Because they want people to think there is no turning back. You take that abortion pill, you've already made the decision, move forward. There's no ramifications, there's no consequences, just move forward. But the reality is many folks, just like the one mentioned in this article, take the pill and immediately regret it. And they should be able to know there is a path with a, with a high percentage chance that they can reverse the damage that has been done. Unsurprisingly, the abortion industry op- opposes these proposals. Testifying against the legislation, abortionists argue that APR is risky for women because it isn't approved by the FDA and amounts to experimenting on women, even as they sue the FDA to remove safety protocols for the chemical abortion drugs. Now, now think about that. So they're saying the APR isn't approved by the FDA and is dangerous. And at the same time, they're they're pleading to the FDA, hey, we should be able to get these abortion pills in the hands of anybody that wants them. We should be able to send them in the mail. There should be no oversight. Let's move forward. Not to mention, millions and millions of people in our country have just taken a vaccine that also has not been approved. Yeah, we're taking it. Pretty much being experiments. And that's okay. But notice the hypocrisy. But as Francis points out, using a safe medication in cases when it's when it isn't explicitly FDA approved is common medical practice among obstetricians. For for instance, the drug, uh, the abortion drug is FDA approved only to treat gastric ulcers and to induce early abortion. But it is frequently used to induce labor in a non-abortion context. 
Using progesterone to halt a chemical abortion has not been shown to have any safety risk. In fact, the chief study that abortion supporters cite to argue that APR is unsafe demonstrates the opposite. And, and that the abortion pill carries significant risk to the pregnant women. And APR treatment appears to do nothing but help. The study itself involved several obvious conflicts of interest among its authors. Laura Davis, an employee of Planned Parenthood. Rachel Stewart, an employee at a California chain of abortion clinics. And Dr. Mitchell Crenan, an OBGYN and consultant for Danco Laboratories, the company that produces the abortion pill. Meanwhile, it enrolled just 12 women, two of whom dropped out after experiencing side effects, leaving only 10 subjects, too few to provide any real insight into how APR might work on a wide scale. And so we know that abortion pill reversal is safe. Studies show that. We know it should be an option for women that have taken the abortion pill. Yet the abortion industry is fighting it. Look, they're not fighting it because of safety of women. They're fighting it because their industry depends on women that want abortions. That's the fact. We'll be back. As we finish up today, I would, again, encourage you to go to investinghope.com, sign up for our uh, A Night with Hope event that's Thursday, April 29th at 8 p.m. Also, if you sign up and register on our website, you can also get an event kit, which has a lot of cool stuff. You can go to our Instagram page, Facebook page, to see what's all going to be in that event kit. Uh, but you you don't want to miss that. It's free. Sign up for it, and you'll get it. Uh, also, it is a fundraising banquet. We couldn't do any of the work we do without your gifts. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your partnership. Uh, but watch the event. I do think you'll be moved by hearing from our partner, our, our partners and also our, our patients. And, and I think it's important uh, for you to really get a sense of what we do at Hope Resource Center. Uh, hopefully today's conversation has been fruitful. Hopefully it opened your eyes to some things that are going on that you might not have been uh, aware of, uh, court decisions and, and legislation that, that's occurring. The, the reason why, now if you're local, and you're going, well, what's it matter to me what Ohio does and the decision that goes into that uh, because I live in Tennessee? Well, because that decision made allows for that piece of legislation to move forward concerning Down syndrome. Uh, and, and so what that means is other states, pro-life states, uh, will, will move to pass legislation like that. And that's a good thing. We need to protect our vulnerable and, and, and there is no more vulnerable than those growing inside the womb. And so uh, Tennessee will be moving forward with something like that. I'm, I'm quite confident. Other states will, will do the same. Other states already have done that. And so uh, these are things that we want to do. Look, the reality is when Roe v. Wade is overturned, it goes back to the states. We've already seen some states like Virginia and New York and, and others that have gone far extreme when it comes to abortion, pretty much saying, look, if you want an abortion for any reason at any point, just come to our state. We'll take care of it. And so why not have, if those states are doing that, why can't states that are, that are more pro-life look to have restrictions on abortion? Right? I mean, that just makes sense. And it's the way it should be. And, and so we're going to see that ball rolling more and more and more. And I'm thankful for the court decision. Uh, you know, we, we don't get to say that a lot, but I'm thankful for the court decision that was had there concerning the, the case in Ohio. We have a lot of work to do. There's no doubt. But, but most of that work can occur locally. Most of that work can occur with our neighbors. Most of that work can occur in conversations. It doesn't have to just be limited to 
court decisions and legislation and governors and, and voting booths and all that. All those things are important, but a lot of that can be done by having conversation with neighbors about things that are happening, things that are going on. Why are you pro-life? Is it because you hate people? Well, no. Why are you pro-life? Is it because you only are four babies? Well, no. Like having those conversations will matter. And the reality is most, if you look at most polls and studies, people, the vast majority of the populace want some type of restrictions on abortion. If you came out tomorrow and said, look, you should be able to abort babies uh, based on race, most of the population is going to go, that's crazy. No, you shouldn't be able to do that. If you came out tomorrow and said, look, you know, if, if, if you have an ultrasound and it appears that your baby is missing an arm, you should be able to have an abortion. Most of the population is going to go, that's crazy. You shouldn't be able to do that. So, so when we, when we say that, or when some folks say it's, if your baby is being diagnosed with Down syndrome, you should be able to abort that baby. Most of the population is going to go, no, that, that shouldn't happen. You see, the abortion industry wants you to think that the vast majority of your neighbors just want abortion uh, around every corner. Hey, that's not true. They want you to believe that. They want to, they want to control the narrative. They want your cable news to tell you that. They want the articles to tell you that. But the reality is most of your neighbors don't want that to be the case. Most of your neighbors would probably say, yeah, in case of life of the mother, rape, incest, abortion should be fine. Uh, but other cases, I mean, I think we should look at that more. Or, or if the most of your neighbors, if you say, should you be able to abort a baby all the way up to nine months? Most of your neighbors are going to say, absolutely not. But see, we're, we're not allowing ourselves to have these conversations. And, and frankly, when some politicians have these conversations, they are so terrible at articulating the position that it just doesn't work. So, so as we celebrate life and as we do the work that we do at Hope Resource Center, we do that because every life has intrinsic value from womb to tomb. Like that should matter to us. It matters to us at Hope. I hope it matters to you when you look at this issue. It also should matter to us when we're talking with somebody that disagrees with us because that person has intrinsic value. So how we address them and how we have a conversation with them should reflect that. That's not always easy. We'll talk to you more next week.